Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I also want to preface it by saying if you're here for the first time, uh, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians is dealing with Christian giving. And a lot of times when somebody walks into a church, maybe for the first time, and they're not familiar, and they go, oh, there they are, they're going to ask, they're asking for money. I knew it, I knew that was going to happen when I walked in there, but uh, no, we don't do it like that. We are in the book of 2 Corinthians, we did chapter 8 last week, which begins the biblical uh, teaching on giving, and, and chapter 9 follows that on, on Christian giving. We're going right through the New Testament. We'll be in chapter 10 next week, 11 next week. So again, we just, we cover the topic as it comes up in our teaching. So if you just happen to be here on that day when we're going to speak about <clears throat> a, a biblical giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I, I title it, <clears throat> You Can't Outgive God. You Can't Outgive God. In chapters 8 and 9, Paul shows us <clears throat> the Christian doctrine of giving. It could be summarized like this. First, it's a grace. It's a grace. In other words, it's a nature that's created by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 7. Secondly, according to the law, you are required to give. But Christian giving <clears throat> in the New Testament is voluntary. And it's a test of sincerity. Chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. And here in chapter 9, verses 1, 2, 5, and 7. Third, the privilege is universal. It's belonging and it's according to ability, to rich and poor. Fourth, giving is to be fair, to be proportionate to income. The Old Testament proportion was the tithe or a tenth, a proportion that occurred before the law as well as many specified offerings. And lastly, the rewards of a Christian, uh, of Christian giving are joy, Increased ability to give in proportion to what's already been given, and increased thankfulness to God, and God and the gospel are glorified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, we have the basic features of Christian giving, which is, number one, the time of the giving, the regularity of the giving, the participants in the giving, the basis of the giving, and the manner of the giving. Now, in chapters 1 to 7, prior to touching this subject, uh, subject in verses 8 and 9, chapters 1 through 7, remember Paul had been talking about the comfort that God gives in all areas of our life, the comfort in serving, comfort in suffering, you know, comfort in death. So he was, again, talking about the comfort that God gives us in all areas of our lives. And then he kind of abruptly changes the subject here in chapters 8 and 9. And he changes to the collection for the poor saints of Jerusalem. And he moves from the subject of Christian living to Christian giving, which is just as important as living. Now, it seems strange that we Christians need to be encouraged to give. You know, encouraged to give when God has given us so much. It's just like when we were in, in, in Jeremiah a couple weeks ago, chapter 33, when God had to encourage the people to pray. He said, come to me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things such as you do not know. Again, uh, he, he, it was a command to pray. 
And here it's an encouragement to give. And, and again, it's odd that God has to command us and encourage us to do those things when he's done so much to us and he's been so much to us. God had enriched the Corinthians in a wonderful way. And yet they were hesitant to share what they had with others. You see, they weren't, <clears throat> they weren't used to grace giving, as Paul called it, grace giving. So Paul had to explain to them what it was all about. And after explaining it to them, he tried to stir them up. He tried to get them excited. He tried to get them to take part in the special offering by encouraging them. This special offering that they were going to take to the poor. Chapter 9 is a continuation of chapter 8. And again, chapter 8 was about the grace of giving. Chapter 9 here, we have what Christian giving is. So let's begin now in chapter 9 with verses 1 and 2. And Paul said, Now concerning the, the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stored up the majority. Now there's a lot of ways to get people to give to the Lord's work. With some it's the idea of reward. Well, you know, if I give, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rewarded. Up to others, it's the conviction of duty, that the law demands tithes and offerings and that grace deserves them. Then there are impulsive givers. You know, many are easily moved by their emotions. You know, we see, you know, many commercials on TV about, uh, on TV about areas where, you know, people are poor, they're hurting, you know, and, and they, they need help. And so, you know, people see those commercials and they just, they're moved by their emotions and they give when they hear or, or see a great need. The Macedonians <clears throat> had been stirred up to give and to give generously by the early example of the Corinthians who Paul had evidently been talking about enthusiastically. Paul thought that the Corinthians thinking about their lack of response between their promise, because they had made a promise earlier, and then they didn't um, you know, work on their promise. They didn't keep it. And so you know, Paul was here talking about the lack of their, their, their promise and, and their works. Uh, and he was hoping that by talking about them, they might be moved by embarrassment, <clears throat> maybe because, oh, we made this promise and we didn't keep it, they weren't giving, or maybe they would be moved by guilt, feeling bad that, oh, man, you know, I, I feel bad that I didn't give, or, or maybe envy, looking at the others giving and getting blessed, and here they're not, they're not giving. So these don't seem like good reasons for giving. But what Paul is doing here isn't so much stirring them up to give as he is stirring them up to keep their promise, something that they had already made to promise to do. Paul's argument is that what you promised, you need to deliver. And he believed them, and he told others about how they were going to give. They're so excited about being a part of the good work of sending money to help the poor in Jerusalem. And that's why the men were coming. Notice verses 3 and 4. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. <clears throat> so Paul is saying, somebody's going to be very embarrassed. You know, if we get there and there's no collection like you promised. He says, I'm going to be just as embarrassed as the Corinthians. 
when I and the Macedonians get to Corinth, and there's nothing there. There's no collection. The Corinthians proved that they weren't willing to keep their promises. The word unprepared here in verse 4, it comes from a word that means used for preparing a meal or preparing for war. And Paul was giving them a chance to get themselves together. And, he, and he wouldn't, it wouldn't be right for the Corinthians, with all of their gifts and abilities and all of their wealth and influence, to prove themselves to be just a bunch of talkers. They talked about giving, and now they're coming to get the collection, and hey, if there's nothing there, they're, man, it's, it's going to be embarrassing. That's why Titus and his companions were coming. Look at verse 5. Therefore, all right, in light of what he just said, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So three men were sent ahead of Paul and those from Macedonia and other places. They would be coming with him. Paul was hoping that between Titus and his companions that this letter that they were bringing with them would be enough uh, said to have the promised uh, nation uh, do what they were going to do and have it ready in time. After Paul said what he had to say, he backed off. Because when it came to giving, Paul didn't want to come across as being pushy. He didn't want anything to be looked at as high-pressure tactics. Now, you can persuade people morally and spiritually, but no carnal or worldly tactics should be used. And Paul is saying, hey, I want this to be a spontaneous gift. I want this to be from your heart. Not grudgingly, not because you have to, and not just, oh, well, you know, if I don't, you know, whatever. He wants it to come from the heart. He didn't want the Corinthians to feel that they were being squeezed for the money by what he had just said to them. Now, under the Old Testament economy, a lot of the giving for the upkeep of the Lord's work was covered by law. Had to do it. The services of the temple and the tabernacle, the maintenance of the priests and the Levites, the periodic animal sacrifices were all paid for out of the taxes required by law. And before the Old Testament believer gave any free will offerings, he was required under the law to give 10% of the support of the Levit, uh, to the Levitical service, another 10% for the maintenance of the temple feast, and another 10% uh, and every three years to replenish a fund for the poor. But the Corinthians weren't under law. They were under grace. And after all of Paul's continual asking of the Corinthians to keep their promise that they made earlier, he wasn't about to give them the impression that New Testament giving was like the Old Testament. That is a matter of pressure or confiscation even. It's much better for Paul to be embarrassed and the Corinthians to be publicly shamed than to be pressured. It had to be a spontaneous gift. Over and over, Paul used the word grace to emphasize the bottom line in all Christian giving. In verses 6 through 9 there, we have now a principle. In verses 6 through 9, there's a principle, and Paul gives three basic facts. First, notice it in verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So here's the first uh, uh, of the uh, basic facts in this principle. 
that Paul's giving. It's if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. You know, if you sow generously, you're going to reap generously. For example, there was a preacher named Robert Laidlaw. He was also a very successful and wealthy businessman from New Zealand. And this man had a personal testimony for his own rule for giving in an old notebook that he kept. In 1904, when he was 18 and a half years old, wages were one pound a week, which was $5 a week. He said, I've added to, he says, I have decided to start giving 10% to the Lord. In 1906, he says, before my money gets a grip on my heart, he said, by the grace of God, I entered into the following pledge with my Lord. He set up a graduated scale of earnings. He said, if the Lord blessed me with X amount of money, I would give 15% of all that I earn. If the Lord blessed him with Y amount of money, he'd give 20% of all that he earned. And he said, if the Lord blessed me with Z amount of money, I would give 25% of all that I earned. Later, he wrote this. In 1910, at age 25, I have decided to change the above graduated scale and start now giving half, 50% of all my earnings. Later on, when he was 70 years old, this man who had become a multimillionaire testified, God graciously entrusted me to be a steward far beyond my expectations. He also testified, in all my wide experience, I have never met a man who was miserly in money matters with God who was blessed with spiritual gifts. In an article written in Laidlaw's Old Age, this respected businessman and evangelist pointed out that giving isn't a question of generosity, but of honesty. How much can I really give? Israel started with one person robbing God, Achan, in Joshua 7. And because of the spoil of Jericho, because the spoil of Jericho, it was claimed by God, it was all God's. But Israel ended with the whole nation robbing God. In Malachi, he said in chapter 3, verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. The people said, but, but you say, they said, But in what way have we robbed you, Lord? He said, In tithes and offerings. How about you? Are you robbing God by not giving him what belongs to him? And we need to remember, whatever we've been given He's given it to us. We're just giving, get, having an opportunity to give it back to him. Are you having problems making ends meet? Living paycheck to paycheck? Are you praying to God to help make ends meet? And yet, we're not giving to him. How can we expect God to bless us if we're robbing him? A pastor asked a longtime member of the church who came now and then, he asked him, hey, when will you give of yourself to the Lord in service? The man replied, the thief on the cross didn't give anything, yet he went to heaven. The pastor said, well, yeah, you can be a living thief or you can be a dying thief. Take your pick. Just like Israel, who started with one person robbing God, Achan, the early church started with one person, or really two, a married couple, uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, robbing God. And it ended up with the whole Laodicean church robbing God, Revelation chapter 3. Though the Laodicean church boasted about its wealth, hey, it was actually poor. It's amazing how God sees us in his eyes. 
oh, we're rich and we have this. God said, no, you're poor and naked, man. You're poor and naked. The proof that it was not given to God, that, that, that proof that it was not given to God, what belonged to him in the church of Laodicea? He said, if you're wealth, he says, if, if you're poor, then you're not actually giving, he says, to what goes to God. Paul points to the simple but obvious fact that if a farmer tries to scrimp and he tries to save when he's planting seed, all he can look forward to is a skimpy harvest. We get what we put into it. No matter how poor we might be, not giving to God what rightfully belongs to him isn't the place to start saving. The more seed that you plant, the greater the harvest you can expect. But, we have to watch out for the deception of giving just to get. And, and a lot of people, well, you know, I'm going to give to God and, and he's going to just bless me. And, and that's the thing, not, not giving based on that idea. The second, the second fact in the principle of giving, Paul tests us in verse 7. Look at verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Notice, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God looks at the giver's heart to see the motive for his giving. Why am I giving? What's my purpose? What's my motivation for giving to God? Why do you give? You know, does the person give out of devotion? Do you give out of duty? out of the goodness and generosity and the grace of an overflowing heart? Because God doesn't want anything that's given grudgingly. The word grudgingly means out of sorrow. You know, man, I'm, I'm bummed that I gave that today. I'm bummed that I, that I gave that amount or whatever it might be. God doesn't want anything given to him or to his work that is given out of a sense of pain or pressure. God is not a beggar. He doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need yours. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Giving doesn't benefit God. It benefits us. It goes towards our account. So giving to God grudgingly is really an insult to God. He doesn't like gifts given to him grudgingly. And I'm sure you would need it. Let's say come Christmas time. Somebody comes and gives you a gift. Man, you don't know how much I had to spend on this thing, man. You know, I, I really didn't have the money, but, but by the time he's through with his, you don't want that thing anymore. God's the same way. Oh, Lord, you know, I needed to pay this, and I, you know, I could have used it for this over here, but, but, but here you are. You know, if, it, it, God says, hey, you know, if you don't want to give it out of a cheerful, that's okay. I don't need it. Keep it. So Paul didn't want anyone at Corinth to be pressured. You know, to give just because he was coming with the Macedonians out of necessity. He didn't want them given out of necessity. All giving must be free from any kind of pressure. It has to be free from the heart. And God, and, and God looks at the heart and the motive. You know, it's like the farmer and his wife are out there. One of their cows, you know, was, was calving. And, and, and the, cow, the cow gave, it, it gave birth to two calves. And so God says, the, the, the farmer said, you know, I, I'm so blessed that God gave us two calves. He says, I'm going to give one of those calves to God. And so he goes out to the barn later on, and he finds out that, that one of the calves has died. And he was so sad, and he said, Lord, I'm sorry, but your calf died. 
so I'm going to give you one. Oh, but Lord, yours died, you know. That's what we do. We either give leftovers or we give grudgingly or we say, well, just not today, Lord. In Matthew 12, I'm sorry, Mark 12, verse 41 through 44, it says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money in the treasury. Think about that. He sees how we give to him. He sat opposite the treasury and he saw how the people put money into the treasury. He sat down to watch the way people made their contributions. The wealthy, they were just, you know, they were just putting money in by the handfuls because it was coming out of their wealth. It didn't affect them. Some were giving cheerfully. Some were giving grudgingly. The Lord watched each one. The original language suggests Jesus was watching with thoughtful observation. Jesus watched it all with an eager eye. He watched, he watched all the drama, all the wincing, oh, you know, he, he watched it. He watched the play acting, you know, that, that caught his attention. And then something caught his eye or someone. A little widow with her two, two little mites. She loved God and she wanted to give him something. She knew what it was to be desperately poor because she gave all that she had. Those two mites were, was all that she had. Everything that she owned. Jesus saw her go to the offering box with her two little coins in her hand, and Jesus saw the struggle going on inside of her. Like us, how am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? How am I going to buy this? How am I going to buy that? And then, then the sudden decision to give the coins. She put them in the treasury box, and she left. And Jesus was pleased. Little did she know who was watching her that day. Little did she know that the Lord of glory was sitting by that treasury. Little did she know that he looked into her purse and little did she know how much joy she brought to Jesus that day. Little did she know that what she did with her two little mites, the Holy Spirit would record it for us in the Gospels and, and her generosity would be spoken of till the end of the age. And here we are talking about that little lady. One commentator said, I have often wondered what she found when she got back home penniless that day. Did the Lord send Judas with a gift for her? Just a few days before, the Lord had received Zacchaeus' promise where he said that he would give half of his goods to the poor. Did the Lord Jesus touch the heart of repentant Zacchaeus and lead him to the house of the penniless widow? We'll never know. We'll never know about the widow, but you can learn this wonderful experience for yourself. One thing we do know, her reward will be great in heaven because she gave all that she had. and She gave from a loving heart. God loves a cheerful giver, and the word cheerful means hilarious. In David's case, after Ornan offered him one of, the, uh, one of his possessions, remember, uh, for nothing, David wanted to, to offer, uh, bless the Lord. David said, no. He said, I insist on buying it. Ornan wanted to give it to him. David said, no, I insist on buying it because I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. Does our giving cost us? Does it really cost us? David wanted to give a loving, 
and, and giving sacrifice because loving and giving is sacrificial. And I remember when Kathy and I were living up in the mountains up by the grapevine, I used to drive almost 200 miles round trip to work. And when God called Kathy and I out of those mountains to go to Golden Springs when they got the new building over there, and Pastor Rollins saying, pray about those who might, uh, who might got brought over here to be in the ministry. Well, Kathy and I felt that he wanted us to go to Golden Springs, be a part of the ministry. So we put our house up for sale. And I was like Philip. I got out my calculator. Okay, here's what we need to move. And we all know that number, don't we? We all have a number that we need to get out of our house in order to buy a house wherever you're going to go. And so, you know, we, we put the house, the, the house up for sale, and uh, for, we had it up for sale for a year, and all the offers were, were way under what, what we needed in our mind. And so, after a year, it didn't sell, and we were, you know, on that contract with the real estate agent for a year. And so, when that year came up and, and it didn't sell, well, we, we took it off the market. We took for sale sign down. And a couple of days later, Kathy's outside, and, and the Lord speaks to Kathy and says, put up a for sale sign. So she gets out a piece of cardboard and writes on it and nails it on a stake, and she puts it in the front yard. That day, a man drove by and hey, said, hey, is your house for sale? She goes, well, you know, yeah, I just put the sign up a couple hours ago. And he made an offer. And... It was lower than we wanted. But I'm thinking, after this for sale sign, you know, came down, and, and we put this up just, well, Kathy, because God, God spoke to her, and this guy comes by on that day and asks, I go, I just, you know, I was really, what do I do, Lord? And, and that, that night, I was upstairs, and I was, I was getting ready for work for the next morning, and I'm just, Lord, what do I do? You know, it's 20 grand it's 20 grand less than, than I need. You know, the, the offer is 20 grand less than I need to get in the house, you know, in Corona. And we'd been looking at a house already. And, and I'm just, oh, Lord, what do I do? And he reminded me of David here, you know, you know about sacrificing. That I, he's, God's, Joe, don't you think I know what you need to get into a house? Don't, if I've called you, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make a way for you. And so I went downstairs to Kathy, we're going to take the offer. And, you know, and she was ready. It had been a year. And so, all right, it's $20,000 less, but we're going to go down here at the house we've been looking at. It was too high. But we came down that weekend to look, and they had dropped the price $20,000. Awesome. Amazing. That house had been on market for a year. While we were trying to sell ours, I said, God was holding that one for me, and he was working out all the details. And it reminds me of Isaiah when he says, when God makes us wait, it's because he wants to give us something more gracious. We're so quick to, Lord, no, nah, man, I, I got to go now. I got to have it now. And we go, we, we go through steps that maybe put us in bondage. You know, maybe I, should, I, I get alone. And just let God be God. And so when we got down there and found it was 20, I said, we, we got bold. Hey, we're going to offer him less. Hey, so we offered them less. We said, hey, pay half of the uh, closing cost. They did everything, everything that we asked, abundantly and exceeding more than we could ask. 
So God took care of it, just as David did here. He said, no, I'm, you know, I thought, if I can't sacrifice something for God for what he's done for me, but he didn't. He, he, and he did way more than that. So, you know, God blessed us with that house. And so, you know, he took care of us from that, from that point on. He gave us everything that we needed. And, and that's what God tells us. You know, I will supply all of your need for my riches in heaven. So, you know, we, we can't outgive God. You know, the, the, the nickels and dimes that usually make up a lot of what, you know, you, you see in the offerings, and, I, and I'm not necessarily talking about here, but again, compared to what we can honestly give, it's an indication of the robbery of so many professing Christians. Here's the third fact for the, in the basic principle of giving. God says the cheerful giver, uh, God gives the cheerful giver plenty to enable him to give graciously. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Notice, you always having all sufficiency for all things. All grace, um, all grace, all sufficiency, all things. Why? For every good work. We can never outgive God. All that belongs to God is at our disposal. Remember Jesus, all that the Father has is mine. We might think that during hard economic times, like today, it would be a good idea to give less. But Paul didn't think so. God will take care of our needs, so we never need to decrease our giving or meeting the needs of others. We have a God who can supply all of our need according to his riches and glory by Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.19. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 31 and 34, through 34, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. In other words, these are the things that worldly people will worry about. What they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, what they're going to drink, what they're you know. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Man, don't worry about tomorrow. We got enough to worry about today. And remember, tomorrow may not get here. Pray, hey, Lord, rapture me out of here. Have faith in our Father. Put him first, and he will meet our needs. That's what Jesus was saying. We need to give while we still can because there are plenty of forces at work, even in our society, that would just love to board up our churches right now and nail the door shut on all Christian institutions. We're reading more and more about it in the news. The idea behind the word abound, I'm sorry, in verse 8, Paul said, Paul called on us to abound. It means that God is able to make our riches abound so that we may have an abundance to help in every good work. And the idea behind the word abound is that of exceeding a certain amount or number. The word sufficiency in, word eight, uh, in verse 8 express contentment that comes from having all of our needs met by God. Notice in verse 8, all our needs, not just some, all our needs. People might hesitate to give generously to God if they worry about having enough money, you know, left over to meet their own needs. But Paul here assured the Corinthians God is able to meet their needs, all of their needs. Verse 9. 
As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. This is a quote from Psalm 112.9. It's a scriptural fact that God cares for the poor. As a general rule, those who give will get because God blesses the righteous. Verse 10. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Now, now, now this here is where, as J. Vernon McGee would say, this is where the rubber meets the road. We are to put this whole ministry of giving to the test by faith. Listen to Malachi in chapter 3, verse 10. God speaks to Malachi and says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. God says, And try me. Notice that. Try me. The word is test. Test me now in this. Test me in what I'm saying to you. Says the Lord. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. God says, Test me. Try me. God gives the sower the seed. God transformed the seed into the wheat or corn that bread is made from. The process is so natural, we don't even think about it. Plant the seed, reap the harvest, grind the corn, bake the bread. It's all a miracle. Those dry seeds that are planted seem to die. Then the rain comes and the sun comes and the seeds sprout and they all turn into uh, full-grown corn. The whole process in due time, it puts bread on our table. It's a miracle of God. What's true of planting grain is true of giving to the Lord. God gives the seed. Nobody can create a single life-giving grain of corn. Just so, God gives us the means to give. And as we have come from, all that we have comes from Him. It all looks so natural that we don't even think about it. A man goes to work, he labors, he gets his check. Now he has money to buy what he needs, to save and to give. It's all so natural. But it's the Lord who gives. God gives the seed to the sower, the time, the talent, the toil, the treasure. They're all a part of the process where we ought to see the hand of God. Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18 says, Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand it gave me wealth. This is where they, a lot of these health, wealth, and prosperity guys who, who, who are begging for money and, and, and are trying to get rich. He says, he says, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. In other words, I have earned this. I have made it because of who I am and what I've done. But it says the second part, they don't read this one, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. He's the one who enables you to get whatever you have because he's given you a good job or you've, whatever it might be that has enabled you to, to, to get wealth or whatever the, the, the goodness that you have. God enables us to get whatever we have. It's all God. And if we obey God and we do what God leads us to do, we're going to make it. We're going to be okay. As a result of the skill and the talents and the abilities that God has given us, the table is spread. We have enough bread to spare. God meets our needs to the point that there's more than enough for our needs. We have enough, not just enough to live, we have enough to give. Not, not only does he meet our needs, he multiplies our resources. 
and he suggests a th- threefold process. First, the more we give, the more we go- grow. Look at verse 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. He says, and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. God doesn't just give the seed. He turns it into bread. He makes it so that no one is poor for being generous with what he has. He protects our resources, and at the same time, he increases our fruits or works or righteousness. And the more we give, the more we grow. We exercise the grace of giving. We exercise the grace of giving, and we grow in grace as a result. The second thing is, the more we grow, the more we get. You're enriched in everything. Look at verse 11. While you are enriched, notice, there it is, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which God causes, thanksgiving through us to God. The word enriched here, it comes from a word that pertains to material well-being rather than spiritual enrichment. Now, this isn't necessarily a promise, but a principle. If we're generous Uh, If we're generous, God will make it possible for us to to keep being generous. And the third principle is the more that we get, the more we give. Notice what it says again. uh, It says, for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. As a direct result of our being generous with what we have, those who receive it, in turn, they give thanks and praise to God for those who help them. God doesn't just meet our needs and multiply our resources. He magnifies the results. Look at verse 12. It helps the needy. Verse 12 says, For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Again, it supplies the needs of the saints. The giving of the gifts had a practical value. It helped the needy, the ones who were receiving the gift. Then look at now verses uh, 12 through 13. Uh, it's, uh, verse, verse 13 now, it says, While through the proof of his, uh, this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. It glorifies God. Thanksgiving to God. Notice, it glorifies God. The rewards resulted in thanksgiving God, giving God hand, thanks. So do the results. The thanksgiving and the reward was given by those who gave the gifts. And the thanksgiving in this case is by the receiver of the gifts. He's thankful for what he's received. And the proof, the word proof, the proof of the saints' obedience by their giving resulted in God being glorified. Now, disobedience, it dishonors God. Obedience, it honors him. Look at the first part of verse 14. And by their prayer for you... Who, be, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God. We just read the whole thing. So it motivates prayer by their prayer for you. Those who received the gifts started praying for those who gave the gifts. Again, in verse 14, we see it invites, one, it invites love. It invites love. Who long after you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. The grace of God. That refers to the giving of the saints. The gifts created a passion in the hearts of the receiving saints for the receiving gifts. And then now Paul finishes this great discussion on the grace of giving with an exclamation. Let's close with verse 15. 
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul takes his readers back to Bethlehem. He takes them back to Calvary too. What an indescribable gift. What an indescribable generosity. What an infinite love. Salvation is the gift of all gifts given to the world. The word indescribable, that means what it means. There's no, there are no words to describe how great and wonderful the gift of Jesus Christ is. Indescribable. Words can't describe it. Paul, unlike many people, received the wonderfulness of Jesus Christ. But many people think very disrespectfully of Jesus Christ. But they'll change their thinking in eternity. Because at the name of every at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and, and they're going to worship him. Some will bow to their salvation. Others will bow to their damnation. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, Father, for, for doctrine, Lord, to learn truth inspired by the Holy Spirit, God. But, Father, once we learn and we know the truth. Now we're responsible for it, God. So, Father, may you bless your people, God. May you, may you inspire them, Lord. May you build their faith, God. May they abound more and more with all that, that they have, God. May they continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you for your wonderful mercies, Lord. Father, we do thank you now for the offering that we will receive, God, that you will receive, God. And we pray it will bring you glory. We pray that it will bring you honor. And, Father, in turn, that will be, again, as your word says, added to our account, God, for our good. So, Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.